the children are dismissed, let me just mention to Esdras and Karen, is it, that uh, we're glad to have you here today. And you have a lot of work to do between now and Thursday. Just wait, about six months later, you'll have a nightmare that you didn't get your paper in. That happened to me. It's a nightmare that's wonderful to wake up from. Anyway, a couple of weeks ago, we started a series, What on Earth Did the Cross Accomplish? And we decided to save the last of, the, of these, this three-message series till today, thinking that some friends that met us at the pack last week might want to come here and meet us here. I hope that uh, a few have, and if you have, welcome. What on earth did the cross accomplish? That question can be asked in two ways. It can be asked as a critic, one who is full of doubt and perhaps even full of disbelief over this whole thing of Jesus and his life and ministry and death and burial and resurrection. Or it could be asked as a believer, one who's filled with awe. The interesting thing is either way is accepted because the answer remains the same nonetheless. And it's a convincing one in my opinion. The first thing we looked at, if you'll remember back a few weeks past, is this. The cross accomplished the end of enmity. The point is we were at odds with God and he's at odds with us. Sin had alienated us. But at the cross, a work was done. A work was done. Things like propitiation. God's justifiable wrath against us being satisfied was taken care of at the cross. Things like redemption, being bought out of the marketplace of sin, was taken care of at the cross. Things like justification, a judicial term that declares what God makes of us when we come to faith in Christ, was taken care of at the cross. We were made just as if we'd never sinned. We were given a position in God. Things like reconciliation were taken care of at the cross where two became one. As modeled in marriage, so also. You can see in Ephesians 5 the the parallel between marriage and, and, uh, and, and Christ and the church. All that is taken care of at the cross. At the cross, a work was done. Last week we looked at the fact that at the cross came the end of ignorance. We have ill-informed notions about God sometimes. Sometimes we see God as no love at all. And um, it throws us into into a lifetime of despair. The cross answers that doubt. Sometimes we see God as being unjust. The cross responds to that claim of the unjustness of God, the injustice of God. Because you see, at the, at the cross, a word was spoken relative to the love of God and relative to the justice of God. Today we look at the fact that at the cross, what the cross accomplished was the end of evil. At the cross, not only was there a work done, Not only was there a word spoken, but there also was a war waged. 
and Christ was the victor. Christ waged a war and won. One of the primary sources for me during this, uh, to, in creating this series was a book written by John R. W. Stott, Anglican rector of All Souls Church in London. He uses the word conquest as a catchword for summarizing the war at the cross. I've defined it for you. You'll find it in your message outline. Conquest is defined as follows. The act or process of conquering, overcoming or vanquishing opposition by force, physical, mental, or moral. Six things we can say with certainty about this conquest. First of all, the conquest was predicted. Look, if you will, at... uh, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where the Lord says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head. You will strike his heel. Interestingly, every Old Testament text declaring God's present or future role is a further prophecy of this Genesis 3.15 passage. The conquest was predicted. The conquest was also evident. And that's so because of the conflict that was produced. There were human attempts, no doubt satanically inspired, that would have interrupted Jesus, defeating his purposes. I'll turn you to a couple of them. Matthew chapter 2, a big one. This is where Herod tried to intervene, tried to murder Jesus, tried to get to this king that was going to be a rival to him. You know the story. Magi had come to Jerusalem. And they were asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his stars in the east and have come to worship him. Herod finds out about it. He's disturbed. In fact, the text says all of Jerusalem was disturbed over this. Herod called the Magi secretly, and he, finds out the, he wants to find out from them the exact time the star had appeared. And he says, here, I've got an idea for you. You go find this new king, and you let me know so I can come and worship him too. And, of course, the Lord warns the Magi in a dream that they, should, they shouldn't do that. And so they go home. After they find Jesus, they go home by another way. And when Herod re- realizes at verse 16 of chapter 2 of Matthew, when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. What's he do? He gives orders, and he has every little boy in Jerusalem, two years of age or under, killed. So as I say, the conquest was evident. There were human attempts, no doubt satanically inspired, that would have interrupted him, would have defeated his purposes. This is one of them. There was a time in Jesus' life, you can read about it in John chapter 6, when the crowd determined to force him into a political military kingship. That certainly would have interrupted him and defeated his purposes. The text says they were intending to come and take him by force and make him king. There were satanic attempts often humanly implemented, also to thwart his purposes. There was Satan's temptation in the wilderness. That would have thwarted his purpose. There was people, Peter's interference regarding the necessity of the cross. In fact, I want to turn, that, t- turn you to that. Matthew chapter 16, verse 21 to 23. These are poignant words. From that time on, the text says, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, 
that he must be killed and on the third day to be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, never. This shall never happen to you. You notice Jesus' response to him? He turns to Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. You do not have them in mind the things of God, but the things of men. So as we say, this would have thwarted his purpose. Satan is everlastingly at it. Judas' betrayal was another opportunity, so-called, that would have thwarted Jesus' purpose when Satan entered Judas and laid upon his mind to do what he did. The conquest was evident. There was a war going on. This conquest was achieved as well. So we've looked at the fact that it's been predicted, it was evident, and it is achieved. Jesus indicated that at his death, the powers of darkness would be defeated. Satan would be driven out. It goes like this, the ruler of this world shall be cast out. Satan would be defeated at Christ's death. Listen to Hebrews chapter 2, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held slavery by their fear of death. Christ won a victory at the cross. It was effective and decisive, and it all took place right there at the cross. I want you to notice the benefits of it. Permit me an aside, if you will. I'm going to read a passage of Scripture for you. But I want to comment on it first. Have you ever had these moments? This happened to me big time Thursday morning. I was reviewing my notes, going over these passages of Scripture, making sure I understand, answering any questions I might have had about them. And I came to Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 and 15. And as I read, it's like God descended into my office. I couldn't keep from crying. My eyes were watering. My voice was breaking. I called Julianne. I said, Julie, I want you to listen to this. I read the scripture to her. The same thing happened to me again. Chad Erickson came by to chat for a minute, and I said, Chad, listen to this verse. Same thing happened. Janet Moberg came by for something, and I said, Janet, listen to this verse. And each time I read it, my voice broke. My, my eyes welled up with tears. Listen to it. Listen to it. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. Having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Notice who benefits and how. Our certificate of debt has been canceled. It's been taken. It's been put out of the way. It's been nailed to the cross. Know who's defeated. He disarmed rulers and authorities or powers and authorities. He was effectively forceful. This beat-up man on a cross did all of this. He made a public display of them. He showed their powerlessness, even though they were, the, for the moment, thought they had had him. He triumphed. Hanley Mole 
New Testament scholar some years back said of this, the cross was his scaffold from one viewpoint, his imperial chariot from another. This conquest was achieved. Something else about this conquest, it was confirmed and it was announced. Christ's death was the victory won. The resurrection was the victory demonstrated. You see, it's not true that the cross was defeat. We get this idea, oh, Jesus was losing it there, but then he caught up. No, the cross, or the, his death was not a defeat. We get the idea that the cross was defeat, but the resurrection was victory. He won what he won through death. He won at the cross through death. The resurrection is the victory proclaimed, manifested, and demonstrated. The Scripture says it was impossible for death to hold him, to keep its hold on him. Why? Because Jesus won by dying. Through his death, the evil powers were put under his feet. Peter locates Jesus geographically after the resurrection. And where does he find him? Here's what the Scripture says. At the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. My friend, the conquest was confirmed and announced. Jesus won this battle for you and me. This conquest was also and is also extended. The effect of it, I mean, was and is extended. It's extended as God affects change in lives. In 1958, in a little church in Madison, Wisconsin, God affected change in my life. That's an extension of this conquest. In your life, remember the date, remember the day, Jesus extended his conquest into your life. The change is the result of or involves a power encounter. The change itself, our conversion, is a power encounter. And it's the result of a power encounter, the one at the cross. Paul alludes to this very thing with very descriptive words. He says, he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. And then lastly, this conquest will be consummated. It will one day be consummated. Jesus is already reigning. But that isn't seen as evidently as it will one day be seen. Listen to these familiar words. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is going to happen when Jesus comes again. It will happen because Jesus died for our sin. Again, we find death and resurrection belong together. It was by his death he destroyed Satan, and through the resurrection he demonstrated death was defeated and his mission accomplished. So here's the picture. Christ waged a war at the cross, and he won. And that in itself signaled the end of evil. I can hear somebody saying, wait a minute, hold the horses. There's still a lot of evil around. How can you say this signaled the end of evil? Satan is still alive and well. He's, He's still up to his nefarious deeds. How can you say there's an end of evil? Just hang on. Hang on for a minute in this message, but also hang on until the end of the age. There was a conquest. There was a war waged. 
and Jesus won. That's what Easter is all about. Now there's something important for us to see, and that is that this war was waged and this war and, and, and won at the cross, and that it was because of the war Christ won that those who come to him can live victoriously. You and I are able to live above this world because of Jesus Christ. We live victoriously because of Jesus Christ. Now let me say, tell you what this doesn't mean and what it does mean, this, this defeat of Satan. It does not mean that Satan is ineffective. In a sense, he's not destroyed totally. There's a Greek word that at times is inappropriately rendered destroyed, the word katargeo. It has to do with his fallen nature. I'm sorry. It's, it's used inappropriately at times. It's used regarding the devil, the flesh, and death. And the word suggests actually to make ineffective or to make inactive. The devil is not annihilated. So the ultimate defeat has not yet come. The devil, our fallen nature and death are not yet finally destroyed, but they are rendered more impotent through the victory of Christ. Satan is not powerless. He is alive. He is treacherous. He is a very treacherous foe. He wields great power. I want to quote John R. W. Stott at this point. This is the reason for the tension we feel in both our theology and our experience. On the one hand, we are alive, seated and reigning with Christ, as Scriptures teach. On the other hand, we're warned that these same spiritual forces have set themselves in opposition to us so that we have no hope of standing against them unless we're strong in the Lord's strength and clad in His armor. There's a good way to remember this because there's a good way to put it. Satan has been mortally wounded at the cross, thus destroyed, but he's still alive. His heart is still beating. He's still flailing around, desperately doing what damage he might do. Now what this does mean is that Satan's power has been broken. 1 John 3.8 tells us the Son of God appeared for this purpose that he might destroy the works of the devil, that he might render them ineffective, that he might undo them. Those who've been justified by faith have been delivered from the, this, their tyranny. So in what ways does he do this? In what ways does he justify and deliver us from the tyranny of the flesh, for instance? The flesh is our fallen nature. It's our yet unredeemed human nature. The chief characteristic of the flesh is self-centeredness. Its worst manifestations are things like hatred and jealousy and anger, etc. You can read about them in Galatians chapter 5, verse 19 to 21. Sinful human nature is a terribly enslaving thing. In fact, the Bible says everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Jesus said that. But in the next breath, he said, If the Son of Man shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. And this freedom comes through the cross. Let me read another verse for you. Titus chapter 3, verse 3 through 5. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another, 
But when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us. Not because of righteous things we have done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Those justified by faith no longer have to live under the tyranny of the flesh. Likewise, those justified by faith no longer have to live under the tyranny of the world. Someone said, if the flesh is the foothold of the devil has within us, then the world is the means through which he exerts pressure upon us from outside ourselves. The word world here means godless human society. It's that which stands against his word, his will, and his way, though that may appear not to be so at times even. The world's views are different than ours and God's children. John's observation is that those in the world who are, are, are too often characterized by selfish desires, they too often make superficial judgments, failing to recognize man's problem is primarily spiritual, and they are boldly materialistic. Jesus li- leads us to live by a standard that's better than this world. He said, I've overcome the world. Scripture says, everyone born of God has overcome the world. The cross weans us from the world. Galatians says the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. I know what people think of when they look at Christians. What boredom? Let me tell you a little story that parallels this. I was second grade maybe, third grade. I I don't remember exactly, but I I remember the day. I remember the classroom. Sun was streaming in through the windows, and I was sitting in either my second or third grade class, and I was looking at this girl sitting next to me. And I guess she was pretty. She wasn't very pretty to me, but she looked she probably very pretty to her parents. And her hair was all combed so nicely, and she had these little ruffles on her socks even. And she had this frilly little dress on. Her name was Nancy Christensen. She was a very nice girl. But I thought, I'm glad I'm not a girl. (laughs) It just looked to me like girls couldn't have any kind of fun at all. They always have to be so clean. (laughs) That girls must be pretty yucky. I've changed my mind a little bit since then. But that was the picture I had. Looking at, at Nancy... She was so boring. She wasn't a boy. And I was glad I wasn't a girl. There are a lot of people that look at you and me if we claim Christ and we live for Christ. And they say, how yucky. Don't you ever have any fun? Is that all you ever do is go to prayer meetings? Little do do they know how locked up they are with their selfish desires and their superficial judgments and their materialism. That's what we're talking about here. Jesus, for those who are justified by faith, they no longer have to live under the tyranny of the world. Not only that, they no longer have to live under the tyranny of the law, the Old Testament law. How is the law a tyrant? Well, it was given as a guide, was it not? Cited as holy, right? Righteous and good. If it is a tyrant, it's because it highlights our flaws. It condemns us. It sets the boundaries and lets us know how short we fall. 
It is in this sense a curse to us. Christ, however, redeems us from the law's curse. Listen to Romans chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Those justified by faith no longer have to live under the tyranny of the law. Those justified by faith no longer have to live under the tyranny of death. The fear of death is practically universal. There was a guy in a church I pastored one time who part of his testimony was the fact that he had this abject fear of death before he was a Christian. I mean, he would, he would behave erratically. He was so fearful of dying. After he came to Christ, all of that changed. But he's representative of many. Talk to me about anything, but don't talk to me about death. I don't want to deal with this subject. That's where a lot of people are. Scripture tells us that Christ, what Christ does for those who are living under the fear of death. Hebrews 2.15 He delivers those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Jesus teaches what death is to the believer. And here's what it is. I am the resurrection. That is the means of resurrection for those who physically die. And I am the life. He who believes in me shall live even though he may physically die. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Doesn't mean we're going to escape physical death. Physical death is inevitable. I checked the records. One out of one die. So we are going to die physically unless Jesus comes before. But as Stott puts it, that kind of death for a believer will prove but a trivial episode. I've told you the story before about Margaret Heron. Let me tell you again. Margaret Heron was a delightful woman. She was a single woman. She had served the Lord for over 40 years on the mission field in Kenya. Came time for retirement. She moved back to Fresno, California because she had, she had gotten in touch with a man that was one of her professors at Moody Bible Institute when she went there years before. His wife had died and left him a widow. He had a courtship with Margaret by mail. He proposed to her by mail. They got married in reality when she came back to Fresno, California. He would preceded her in death, and she was a wonderful, godly woman, and she hadn't been feeling well. She went to the doctor one day, and he examined her very carefully, lengthy examination. He left the room for an extended period of time. Finally, he came back with a somber, somber look on his face, and he sat down next to her. And I think, if I remember correctly, he took her hand. He said, Margaret, I'm afraid I have some very bad news for you. Margaret, you have leukemia. She almost shouted. She said, Hallelujah. Is that going to be my vehicle home? Christ delivers us from the tyranny of death. So you see what the cross has accomplished? There was a word spoken there. There was a work accomplished there. There was a war waged there. And that war brings the end of evil. It means we don't have to live under the tyranny of the flesh, the world the law, or death. 
Friend, I can't urge you earnestly enough. Whatever you do, make sure you come to the cross. Make sure you come to where the war was waged and won by Christ. Make sure you take advantage of what Jesus did. All you've got to do is tell Jesus you know what he did there. All you've got to do is tell him you want to follow him by taking him as your Lord and your Savior. For those of us who have done that, we should come back to the cross just to say thank you, should we not? We should come back daily to tell him how thankful we are for what he did for us at the cross. Jesus died so that you and I could live. The victory was in dying. The demonstration of the victory was in being resurrected. They didn't take his life. He gave it. He gave it for you. He gave it for me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the cross. Beneath the cross of Jesus, I fain would take my stand. We take our stand. We stand before you today in humility, thanking you for what you did through the cross. We pray, dear Lord, that you would help any who do not know you to respond to you today by coming to the cross. And those of, who, those of us who have come to you, we revisit the cross every day. We're so thankful for what you've done for our, in our lives. You took the certificate of debt, our debt, and you nailed it to the cross. You triumphed over evil at the cross. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to wait upon you for the Lord's tithe and for your offering this morning. We'd like to ask you to take your connection.